Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Today is the sixth and the final installment in our in-depth study of the book of Job. If you've been with us during these last six weeks, if you've been reading along, then you know just as well as any that this study has been more than just a study of the book of the Bible, more than just a study of an ancient book, the oldest story that we have, more than that, it's been a journey that we've been making into the depths of the human experience. Yeah. We met up with Job and were introduced to Job as one who was living a fantastic life. His life, by God's own description, was blameless, upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. And everything that was in his life was as it should be. His life had been ordered in such a way as to to command the respect of all in the land of Uz. In fact, it was said that Job was the greatest of all the men in the east. But we saw that everything he had was taken away. We saw that everything that he had constructed in his life had been deconstructed right before his eyes and he lost everything that mattered and then we saw him on this journey of lament. And we traveled with him as he sat on the ash heap of suffering, having lost everything that mattered, including his own health. He has friends show up to try to comfort him, and they do a good job for a little while. They're quiet. They're silent. And in their silent presence, there's a strength that comes. But the moment Job opens his mouth and laments, the moment Job begins to ask questions about God and why God would order the universe the way God had ordered the universe, the, the moment that, that Job begins to actually question God, maybe even doubt God, it causes so much anxiety in the hearts of his friends that they take issue with him. And, and for the better part of the whole of the book of Job, The three friends argue with Job. They debate in these three cycles of debate in which they they try to stand up for God and defend God's character and defend God's reputation. And they charge Job with crimes. They charge Job, surely, Job, you must have done something to deserve what you had coming. God doesn't just dole out uh, vexation and condemnation and suffering for no good reason. And this pattern went on and on until Job had had it. By the end of chapter 31, we find Job shaking his fist at the heavens, holding a subpoena in his hand. Here's my signature. I'm innocent of all charges. Now you, Lord, come and face me like a man. It was like he was holding a subpoena up to God, having him come to court. Well, in the last couple of weeks, we saw 
that God came to court. And when God comes to confront Job, he does it in two magnificent speeches, monologues, in which God speaks and Job listens. And God takes Job on what we called the whirlwind tour of the universe. And he takes Job to every realm of the known cosmos and shows him mysteries that he's never considered. He shows him the complexities of life in this universe that Job had never considered. And at the end of this tour, at the end of this speech with one question right after the next in God's cross-examination of Job, Job is utterly speechless. In fact, two weeks ago, we found him putting his hand over his mouth and he said, I shouldn't have said a thing. I spoke once and then I spoke twice, but I will not speak again. I'll keep my mouth shut. But then last week, you and I saw God respond to Job's response by saying, no, sir, no, you will not. You will gird up your loins like a man and act heroic, the word geber from last week. Gird your loins like a hero and live out a faith that is heroic. And then God, in a second speech, shows Job these two magnificent animals, behemoth and leviathan, two animals that were designed to really be super animals, super beasts beyond all things on earth. Nothing can touch them. Nothing could defeat them. And God holds up the heroic design in which they've been designed, and he compels Job to consider the possibility that even in Job there is a heroic faith that even Job is unaware of. And by the end of that second speech, at the end of last week, after all that Job has seen, after all he's endured through the valley of his suffering, after finally having a confrontation with the one who he had been seeking to confront his whole journey, Job has these words to offer in chapter 42 Verse 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And last week, if you were with us, we unpacked that last phrase. Because typically we interpret that kind of phrase, I repent in dust and ashes, as, as somehow thinking that Job may have regretted all that he had done. Maybe he had repented like, I'm sorry, I take it all back, I am nothing, I'm dirt. But as we unpacked last week in the Hebrew, the word repent means I changed my mind about dust and ashes. The word dust and ashes means humanity. I changed my mind about what I used to think about humanity because no longer do I think that it's a human being's job to keep quiet before God no longer do I think that it's the job of the human to self-erase and just disappear in the midst of their suffering but now I have seen with my own eyes that this God is a God who welcomes our faith as fierce as it is and I changed my mind about what I used to think because now Job has received something better than answers. He has received now an encounter, a relationship with the Almighty because he didn't shut his mouth. Yeah. 
So now, today, we pick up the story in the same chapter as we conclude the story of Job because now God reacts to Job's final statement. And this is what we read in chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's one of the friends of of Job, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servants Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now there's so much going on in this text worthy of our attention. In fact, maybe the most delightful, enjoyable part of this is this phrase, the Lord's wrath burned against the friends of Job. Well, in Hebrew, the word, the phrase is wrath burned against includes the word af, which in af uh, it means the nostrils of the nose. Literally, what's happening in the text, it says that God's nostrils flared in anger. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful image? That his nostrils flared in anger over these super-spiritual, hyper-religious defenders of God because in God's own words, they have not spoken what is right of God as Job did. In all of his questioning, in all of his showing up, in all of his being present and desiring to have a face-to-face with God, Job is the one who speaks rightly there is a lesson to be learned here from you and me or for you and me and that is be careful when you put religious doctrine theological language spiritual purity above being attentive to someone who is suffering and struggling and in anguish over their pain and loss. Because the friends of Job did just that. They elevated the need to somehow defend the faith and speak up for God when in reality what they were doing simultaneously was elevating religious language and religious motivation over being attentive to a human being in the midst of their sorrow. Even Jesus told us to be careful about what we do with our lips if we don't follow up our words with our actions. Listen to what he said in the the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. Yeah, 
Only the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, well, di- didn't, we, didn't we prophesy in your name? I mean, didn't we use the right words and say the right things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons, get rid of the, the, the problems in your, in your name? And d- didn't we do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Not like Job knows God because there is a kind of knowing that includes information and right doctrine and theology and religious practice and there is a kind of knowing that is an intimate knowing by seeing with your own eyes. As I said a couple of weeks ago, there's a difference between talking about God and talking to God. Even, even at the end of Matthew's gospel, like in um, chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the kingdom that's to come, right? And, he, and he's talking about those who are in the kingdom, the people who occupy the kingdom. This is Jesus, by the way, okay? This is, this is our Lord, by the way. He says, the ones who occupy the kingdom are the ones who see hungry people and feed them. And who see thirsty people and give them drink. Who see lonely strangers and welcome them in. Who see those without clothing and give them clothes. Those who are sick and give them care. Those who are in prison and visit them. To these, the kingdom belongs. Yeah. Jesus had a brother. He had several brothers and some sisters too. And one of his brothers, James wrote at the beginning of his letter these words about religion in James chapter 1 we hear these words religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to care for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world To keep oneself, that widows and orphans is simply a phrase that means anyone who is suffering and is on the margin of the consciousness of society, forgotten, thrown away, that's true religion, paying attention to them. My question for us to consider here as we think about the friends of Job, for whom God's nostrils flare, do you know anybody who has left the church? or left faith, or walked away from God because, because they had too many encounters with religious people, super spiritual people, who didn't pay attention to the real hurts of this world. When we spend the better part of our time talking about God instead of attending those who suffer in God's name, then we flare the nostrils of the Almighty. Yeah. Well, the, the story continues because Job prays on their behalf and God relents because of Job's faithful prayer. And then we're told that God restores all of Job's fortune. Listen to how the story continues in verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. 
Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave, them, gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than, he, than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, not seven, right? 6,000 camels, not six, a 1,000 yoke of oxen instead of 500, and a 1,000 camels, I mean a 1,000 donkeys instead of 500. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage toward the end of this magnificent story. One of the first curiosities is the restoration of Job's fortune. Now, why did God restore the fortune of Job? Fact is, nobody knows. There is no answer to that question. I mean, We don't know why he restored the fortune of Job, just like we don't know why his fortune was taken away. It's one of those questions that in the book of Job is really never answered. But here is a moment of caution for you and me. It's important for us to caution ourselves against the temptation to believe in what many have called prosperity thinking. That, that because of Job's faithfulness or whatever, God rewarded him and doubled it up because Job was so faithful, right? Fact is, we don't know why he got what he got back. We don't know why he got how much he got back. The fact is, God doesn't, doesn't work in ways that we can predict like that. The fact is, just because a person is good and righteous and holy does not mean they accrue wealth and material goods. And just because someone has uh, violated covenant with God or been vile and evil doesn't mean that they are impoverished. The fact is, I know plenty of people who are truly righteous people, individuals who are so godly that when you're with them, you just... You just wish some of their their spirit would just rub off on you, right? I know people who are so righteous and close to God who don't have a penny to their name, can't rub two nickels together. And I also know people who have everything the world has to offer. They have all the wealth they could accrue and, and, and know nothing about the intimacy of a relationship with the divine. And who ignore those who suffer rather than attend those who suffer with their wealth. So wealth and prosperity is no respecter of righteousness. It's important for us to remember that. That prosperity and fortune is not the point of this story. 
There's another interesting part of this last part of this epilogue that just fascinates me, though. It's about the daughters. More verses are spent speaking about Job's daughters here than even the sons. They're given names, they're described in all their beauty. And maybe the most compelling is that they're given an inheritance which is just, which is just unheard of. In a patriarchal society, women are barely even mentioned or given the, 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 the attention of, of, of any kind of religious or social authority. And yet, Job gives his daughters an inheritance just like he gives his sons. And why? Well, the post-suffering Job. The Job at the end of the story who after already going through his suffering has changed. Something has changed. All the old-fashioned ways of thinking about life and love and family and faith and God have have been transformed. And, And Job knows what it's like to be the recipient of a of an injustice for no apparent reason. He knows what it's like to be, to be given a, a kind of a slight or an injustice for an arbitrary reason. And so now that he's gone through what he's gone through and seen what he's seen and heard what he's heard, he refuses in this post-suffering life, the restored life, he refuses to participate in a system that doles out injustices upon anybody for some arbitrary reason, like being born a woman, right? And so he gives his daughters their due, which is fascinating. And yet, as provocative as that is and worthy of our study, this is not even about the daughters. So what is the point of this last stretch of the book of Job? And now, what's the point of restoring all these things? I think the point may be found in the very last couple of verses of the book. We hear in verse 16, After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children 400 generations. And then watch these words. And Job died old and full of days. Full of days. What does it mean to live a life that is actually, truly full? I think to answer that or to have Job help us answer that, you know what you and I have to do? We have to back away from this verse and away from this chapter. In fact, we back the camera angle up to where we can get a wider view of the entire sweep of the book of Job from beginning all the way to the end. And as we back it up, we recognize that the whole story of Job has a theme to it. The Jobin theme is the universal theme. The theme of Job is the universal theme, the pattern of the universe. So the Jobin pattern and the universal pattern are the same, and it is this, order, disorder, reorder. Order, disorder, reorder. 
Job's life begins completely ordered. There was no life in all the land of Uz quite as orderly as his own. His wealth was well accounted for. His progeny, his children, his livestock, property, everything was in order and he had a life that was well worth living. He had parties day and night. The food was cooked, the wine was poured and Job's life in a snapshot was so orderly that it was the, it was the dream life. It was the, the, the dream of Uz to live like Job. And at the end of of Job's life, we get a picture of the scripture we're reading today of a life that is reordered, right? Everything about his life is reordered. His property is restored, but doubled, right? His, His wealth is restored, but doubled. His children are there. But everything about what he has is not the same as before. It's been reordered. He has a reordered way of thinking about his daughters, for example. A reordered way of thinking about equity and justice. He has a reordered way of thinking about society and faith and love and justice and the universe. And he certainly has a reordered way of thinking and loving God. Thinking about God and loving God has been reordered. But in between the order of his life and the, and the reordering of his life, the greater part of the entire book of Job is about the story of disorder. And you can't get to reordering without going through the disordering, where everything falls apart. It dismantles right before your eyes. And everything that you thought was so sure and so unchangeable, and so permanent, now suddenly is in ashes on a heap beneath your feet. And right here, we get a glimpse that the Jobin pattern is the universal pattern that we all experience. Order, disorder, reorder. What about you? What are you living right now? And in what stage do you find yourself? Because this pattern repeats from the time we are born and the, until the time that God calls us home. That same pattern repeats again and again throughout our lives. In fact, that pattern is every sermon that I have preached to you through this entire pandemic, right? I mean, do you remember the resurrection series? In the resurrection series, we we talked about the reality that we're called to be resurrection people. And as, as resurrection people, we can't live a resurrected life without first dying to an old life. That to be live to, to live raised means that something first has to bury. We call it the Paschal mystery. But there is a life and a dying and a rising to new life. In the liminal series, for example, in the liminal series, this is what the entire series was about, liminal seasons, where we recognize that there are seasons in which we move between the already of what was familiar and good and perfect and and controllable in the land of Uz, and we live between that space 
and the not yet of what is to come. And in between the already and the not yet, there is this liminal space, this threshold in which we are transformed and shaped and molded into something for a reordered life. So call it what you will. Call it the Paschal mystery, the living, dying, and rising of life. Call it order, disorder, reorder. Call it orientation, disorientation, reorientation. The truth is the same. The Jobin pattern is the pattern of the universe. And this is where Jesus comes to our story. This is what Jesus attempted to teach us and not only teach us, demonstrate for us. He said, look, if you want to find your life, I mean, not the life that we set up and construct, but the real life, the life that is truly life, then you must lose your life in order to find it. If you really want to live, if you want to live fully, and I'm not talking about living like your best days and your happiest days, but truly living like authentic days, then you must die in order to find real life in me. Where is it right now that you find yourself in the pattern of Job? Because the The Jobin pattern is the pattern of the universe, but what Job shows us is the pattern of Jesus. This is the life that he has invited us to experience. That in the chaos of the in-between, there is the possibility that we are so transformed that the life we come to is our true life. You know, you and I are talking about coming back to church, aren't we? And, I, and I've mentioned that what we're trying to do is come back on October the, tw- the, the 11th, October the 11th. And I'm really pumped about that. Your pastors are super excited about that, and I know you are too. But there's a lot of talk among all of us in churches everywhere about getting back to normal, right? About let's just get back to normal. Let's get back to the way things used to be. But beloved, I got to tell you the truth because this is a universal pattern. We do not ever anticipate going back to the way things used to be. We cannot. It is gone. Because we have gone through this period together, when we return, it is a reordering of our our lives, our shared life, our, our church life, just as it's a reordering of your life at home right now. What will it look like? How will it feel? Everything that we see and hear and experience is unknown at this point because the universal pattern that is put in motion and most gloriously demonstrated through Jesus is that sometimes the thing that was must fall in order for the thing that is to rise. And there's a interesting observation that's made by Samuel Ballantyne. He's the uh, professor of Hebrew Bible at Union Theological Seminary, and he was my Hebrew Bible professor years ago in Richmond, Virginia. He points out something interesting about our Gospels, or about the New Testament. So in the New Testament, there are a couple of uh, really obscure passages about Jesus after he's crucified descending into hell to proclaim good news to the captives, right? You find that around 1 Peter chapter 3. 
it's a kind of strange passage. It's obscure, it's oblique, it's barely even mentioned. So most of the Christian world doesn't do much with that passage or develop much of that theology, although a good portion does. In the early church, the, the early church fathers, uh, everyone from Ignatius to Aquinas, um, used this image of Jesus after he had died, descending into hell before he rises. In fact, in the second century, the, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed includes a line in it about Jesus descending into hell. But what's most interesting is that artists throughout the ages, artists have grabbed a hold of that obscure passage and have gone to town. Artists from the Byzantine era all the way through the Renaissance, artists would render their interpretation of what it looked like for Jesus to be between life and resurrection between his life on earth and the crucifixion of that life and resurrection and we have interpretations all over uh, church art uh, and and one of the artists is the name uh, Vitor Carpaccio Vitor Carpaccio uh, painted a, a, a painting called Meditation on the Passion. Would you take a look at this, this painting with me? It's called Meditation on the Passion. If you look at first glance, it's, a, it's an image of the crucified Jesus. And in the background, there are two opposing backgrounds. On our right... The background is the background of darkness and suffering and dying and death. In fact, if you zoom in, you see details of an abandoned mountain pathway, a tree dying and leaning toward death. You even see a leopard who was attacked, some kind of a, a deer attacking and devouring. So the one half of the art is death and dying. The other half, the other part of the background is full of life. It's light. It's different. There's life going on. If you were to zoom in, you might see that there are trees and bushes that are teeming with life and fruitfulness. You even find gated communities and walled villages indicating security and safety and life. You even find the leopard along with the deer, but not in pursuit. They, along with the red bird, simply abiding, coexisting in kind of a paradise, really. You back up and you take a look at the hole again, and in the foreground you see three figures. On the left is Jerome, an early church father. Then, of course, the crucified Jesus, before he is resurrected, after he is crucified and before he's resurrected here in the Netherlands where the dead abide and over to the right is Job. What's telling about Job is he's on the life side of the portrait of the painting because Job, as you know by now, has been restored. All of his fortune, his family, his health has been restored. So he's on the life side of the portrait but if you look closely He's still 
is surrounded by vestiges of death. Memories of loss and chaos. He sits upon a granite that's been broken. And the Hebrew inscription there is from Job chapter 18. I know that my Redeemer lives. But perhaps the most curious detail is on Job's hand. If you zoom in, you notice that Job is pointing to his feet. Understanding that he has the directive attention of the Lord crucified here before he's risen from the dead, Job makes it a point to point before Jesus to his own feet as if to state before the crucified Lord, this is how I have come here. Pay attention to the path of suffering that has gotten me to life. Now, at first glance, that may not seem like much, that Job, in this 15th century artist rendering you got Job conferring with Jesus in his interpretation right of this time when Jesus descends between the time Jesus was alive and when Jesus is raised he has him communing it's not uncommon for the artists of the day to have Jesus um, communing with the saints of old like Adam and Moses and David and the prophets and here it's Job and of all the postures that Job could take, he takes the posture of pointing out Job's own feet to our Lord. As if to say, remember how I got to where I am. Now Sam Ballantyne goes on to, to point out an interesting observation in Luke's gospel. So in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is risen from the dead, he makes his, his appearance known to a variety of disciples. And one of the best stories is Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus. And he comes up alongside two disciples and he, he presents himself to them. They don't recognize him at first. But there's something provocative in Luke chapter 24. And it's that after Jesus, after after Jesus presents his risen body to the disciples. And after he already uh, breaks bread and eats with them post-resurrection. And after Jesus has left their sight and the disciples run back to Jerusalem and proclaim he is risen, risen indeed. After all of those things take place. An interesting fashion later in chapter 24 Jesus comes back again Jesus presents himself again to the disciples whom he had already revealed himself to earlier but this time he does something unusual he shows them his hands and his feet and he has them touch his hands and touch his feet why? Could it be because resurrection people have to remember how to touch the wounded who suffer 
and remember the path that it took to get to resurrection. We have the gaping wounds of Jesus in his hands and in his feet and we're invited to see them, to consider them, to touch them and then on occasion to eat the bread and cup that remind us of them so that we never forget the path that it took for us to experience resurrection and for Job to experience restoration. See, Job's story is the Jesus story. Job is like a spoiler alert in the Old Testament that that reveals what is coming in Jesus Christ. And that is, if our life looks glistening, it's perfect, it's holy, it's upright, it's untouched, but then it falls apart, do not despair. Because in the falling apart of life, We meet a God who meets us in the valley of the shadow of death so that we may be restored and brought to new life and experience resurrection like we never have because beloved sisters and brothers, it is not until we are in disorder and and, in disorientation, in chaos, that we learn how to depend upon the one who can get us out of our mess and rescue us from our chaos. We look at the feet of Jesus and remember the path that he has taken leads to life. And the question that I have for you is will you walk behind him on that path? I don't know what you're going through, but I have some kind of idea Because all the world over, we're going through something, right? We're going through this order, disorder, reorder, chaos that we find ourselves in, this pandemic. And I don't know how it has found its way to express itself in your own life. But I can assure you this. You are right now, if you are in the middle of disorder, in the perfect posture to have a face-to-face encounter with the one whom Job met, who the, the... disciples on the road to to Emmaus uh, met the same one who Jerome met and who Aquinas met the same one who Ignatius met and wrote about the same one who this artist portrayed in his inspiration the fact is you are in the right spot for rescue and that's why today if you are there I simply want to lead you in a word of prayer and, and wherever you are, wherever you're sitting, whatever you're doing, if you simply echo this in your own heart, God, I recognize that maybe this pattern has come to me as well, this thing that I can't escape. And the part of my life that I, that I thought was permanent has fallen apart and, and I, I need rescue. And I realize and I confess to you that I am not enough on my own and I cannot, cannot find my way out of this path without you so I look to the feet of Job I look to the feet of Jesus who walk toward resurrection and I ask that you would receive me I yield my life to you and I choose to follow you wherever you may lead in your name I pray Friends, if you prayed that prayer, you need to know that you have now begun a journey that is the most important journey you could ever embark upon. It's the journey of 
a reordered life of resurrection in Christ. Can you imagine, John's Creek, what would happen if if all of us could stay mindful of the reality that most of the people we come across are going through the same pattern, that everyone we come across is somewhere between order and reorder, would that make us more patient? Would that make us more compassionate? Would it make us more sensitive to the needs of our neighbors around us? My prayer for myself as well as for this church is that we would be mindful this day that the resurrection is always calling us out of disorder and into true life. And I pray that you will find that resurrection truth today. Now, wherever it is that your path takes you from here, my prayer is that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with His.